Support for this podcast comes from NBC. Last year, the disappearance of Flight 828 became TV's biggest mystery and made Manifest TV's number one new drama. January 6th, Manifest returns with a mind-blowing new season. Get up to speed for the new season with Manifest, the official podcast. Your one stop for all things Manifest with show creator Jeff Rake. Listen or subscribe to Manifest, the official podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't miss the season two premiere of Manifest, Monday, January 6th on NBC. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me, as always, is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing great. It was nice meeting you last weekend. In the past? Yeah, it was great in the past. Cause or this, in the future? Yes, because we already met. Yes, we're coming to you guys from the past to the future to where we met, but we don't know about it. So our next episode, <laughs> we will re- our next episode, we will recap Crime Cotton. We're sorry. We just have to record when we record. But yeah, it'll be great to be able to recap CrimeCon with for everybody on our next episode. But for tonight, we are going to talk about two cases. Both of these cases involve siblings who went missing together. Outside of custodial abductions, siblings going missing at the same time is very rare. There is no evidence that either of these cases involve custodial interference, though we'll definitely talk about those as theories. The first story will be about the disappearance of Tianda and Diamond Bradley from Chicago in 2001. The second story will be about the disappearance of Scott and Amy Fandel from Sterling, Alaska in 1978. There are a few things these cases have in common. Both are sets of siblings who lived with single moms. They were both left home alone at the time they went missing. But the backdrops... The south side of Chicago to rural Alaska could not be any more different. Like I said, we'll start with the disappearance of Tianda and Diamond Bradley. The Bradley sisters were 10 and 3 at the time of their disappearance. They lived with their mom, Tracy, and also a 12-year-old sister and a 9-year-old sister. They lived in a high-crime neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. They were in a two- or three-bedroom apartment Now, while he didn't live with them, Diamond's father, George, was involved. He and Tracy were on again, off again, so he was often at the apartment. Over this summer, with school out, Tracy was having a hard time making ends meet and taking care of all four of her children, particularly since she didn't get regular child support for any of them. She had a job preparing lunches for a summer program for for children, which was part-time, and I imagine at minimum wage. So she ended up sending two of her children to stay with her mother for a short time, leaving just Tianda and Diamond at home. Tracy, George, Tianda, and Diamond had plans to go camping in Indiana that weekend when Tracy got off of work. They had never gone camping before, so it seemed odd to some family members. And just for people who don't know geography, of the U.S., Chicago is really close to Indiana, so it's not as though they were making a large trip. It would have been an easy weekend trip. In the very early morning hours of July 6, 2001, which was a Friday, Diamond's father, George, came by and he spent the night. 
At 6 or 6.30, Tracy and George left the apartment, with George giving Tracy a ride to work. Tionda and Diamond were still asleep on the couch. Tracy was dropped off at work, and it was not reported where George went after that. Tionda was supposed to be in summer school that day, but the school reported she did not attend. It seems to me that Tracy was unable to find childcare for Diamond and likely kept Tionda home from summer school that morning to watch her. Sometime between 8.30 and 9.30, Tionda left a voicemail on her mum's cell phone. It said, Mama, this is Tionda. Mum, pick up the phone. George is at the door. Can I open the door? He said that we are going to Jules to pick up the cake there. We're coming to pick you up from work. Now, this voicemail was heard by multiple people, but somehow it's been lost or deleted since then. The cake she's referring to here may be her older sister's birthday cake, since her birthday was the following day. George is both the name of Diamond's father, and it's also the name of a neighbour who often babysat the girls. Which is funny, well not funny haha, but funny side note that when I read about the two Georges, I automatically think back to Anna Christian Walters, who also involved two men named George, who are often referred to as the two Georges. But anyway, because we don't have the recording, we are going by the recollections of those who heard the message, so some of it might not be remembered exactly how it was. Some neighbourhood kids report seeing the girls playing outside at about noon, although we are talking about children during unstructured days of summer break, so authorities cannot be sure that the children are remembering the right events on the right day at the right time. The timeline has a little discrepancy here. You'll see that Tracy came home at 11, 12.30 or 1pm after work, And that's when she found the apartment empty. George was with her at the time because he had to pick her up from work. There was a note left on the back of the couch, reportedly in Tianda's handwriting, that indicated the girls were headed to the playground at the school and then to the store. There are two odd things that we need to talk about with this note. First, Tianda didn't leave notes. Just like the phone call about George being at the door, Tianda would have called her mom and left a voicemail about where they were going. She wouldn't have just left a note. And second, even though the note appeared to be in Tianda's handwriting, and they used samples from her homework to do the comparison, the grammar in the note was more sophisticated than Tianda's level. Is it possible that Tianda wrote the note, but someone else dictated it to her? That sounds sounds possible to me. Regardless, Tracy started looking for the girls based on the note, so she went down to the playground, and they weren't there, they weren't near the store, so she started going door-to-door to to the houses and apartments in the area that, that she knew had other kids that her girls played with. She called some family to come help search, but what she didn't do is she didn't call the police. Not calling the police immediately does seem odd, and it does seem suspicious, until we pull back and look a little more at Tracy's situation specifically. If she called the police and the girls turned up having just wandered off somewhere, she was worried about Child Protective Services getting involved. She did not have a past with CPS, but let's look at this. She was poor. She had four children in a small apartment in a bad neighborhood. 
She had left two of those kids to stay with a family member, and she left two young ones home alone while she worked. While you could see maybe leaving a 10-year-old home for a short amount of time, by no stretch is it really socially acceptable to leave a 3-year-old in the care of a 10-year-old for several hours. It frankly just doesn't look good. And if she involved the police and social services, if she didn't have to, and the girls were just at a neighbor's house, that was a pretty big risk. She did eventually call the police when she couldn't find the girls, so around 6 p.m. or so. She called the police, and she lied. She told them that she was napping at the time the girls left the apartment, and they never came back. Eventually, the truth came out, but still being worried about losing custody of her children was in the forefront of her mind here. Which I can understand, but by doing that, she severely impaired the investigation. It absolutely did. They could have furthered the search area. It could have mean the difference between finding the girls and not finding the girls. Right. The girls could have been gone maybe an hour when she got home, and instead, by the time she called the police, it was six hours. I mean, we don't really know, but when you add six hours to a missing child's case, you you lose a lot of time. Exactly. And the investigation was massive. They originally had 100 detectives rotating through 24-7 searching for the girls or even for clues about what happened. They searched the Bradley apartment. They searched waterways, sewers, any vacant or abandoned buildings and garbage heaps. More than 100 registered sex offenders in the area were interviewed, as well as all the extended family members the police could find. And not just one round of interviews either. There were multiple done. Local police, state police and the FBI were all involved. On the Tuesday after the girls went missing, a video was found from a dual grocery store that showed the two girls who matched Tonda and Diamond. This would have been huge because this would mean they were alive and within several blocks of their home. Tracy initially refused to view the tape but then changed her mind and wanted to see it. Now, this seems like odd behaviour once again, but she had gotten an attorney after she felt like she was treated as a suspect, and his advice seemed to mostly consist of telling her not to cooperate. Tracy and the authorities had a very adversarial relationship in the beginning, but it seemed to mellow out over the years. I think Tracy's fear of the authorities, plus the advice of her attorney, it set the wrong path of how this all was approached. This video wasn't the only one they found. Investigators had pulled several tapes from the area and they watched countless hours looking for snippets of the two girls. Tracy saw the ones they identified as possible matches, but she said none of them were her daughters. I think the Jill tape was most notable because it was in the shopping centre Tionda said they were going to in the note and Jill was the grocery store she said George wanted to take them to. Like with a lot of high-profile cases, many tips were called in by psychics. Multiple appeared to have the same basic vision that the girls were buried in a damp place near the water and railroad tracks. They weren't far from their home. There were tips that came in that they were being sex trafficked. In 2007, a photo of a girl from MySpace was sent to authorities as she closely resembled the age progression image of Tianda enough so that family members were pretty convinced this was it. In early 2008, a forensic artist came out publicly saying that the photo was that of Tianda Bradley. Unfortunately, this wasn't true. 
the father of the girl in the photo saw it and spoke up that no, the photo was not Tianda. He was truly sorry that the hopes of the family were raised over this photo. The FBI then verified the girl's identity, and of course this had to have been awful for the Bradley family, but it's also the type of news story that grows legs, and it got the Bradley sister story back into the media attention after six years. In 2013, Sheila Bradley Smith, she's the great aunt to Tianda and Diamond, and she's taken the lead in keeping the story out there for 16 years. She has worked tirelessly to try to find these babies. She received an email from a woman who said that on the day Diamond and Tianda went missing, her boyfriend appeared and was visibly shaken and told her that he did something messed up and something like, she saw it, I had to kill her. The Bradley sisters' investigation is still open, so the police have not commented on this woman, her email, or any investigation they did into it. I'm going to imagine they went and at least talked to her. In 16 years, none of the tips have led to the girls or to any answers about what happened to them. In spite of the changing stories and initial reluctance to cooperate, from my understanding, Tracy is not a suspect in this case. So before we delve into theories that may sound like we're saying she is, I do want to make it clear that it's been said she's not a suspect. And I can see why she isn't a suspect, even with her odd behavior at some points. She bought and wrapped Christmas presents that year for her daughters and had a complete breakdown on Christmas Eve looking at the presents. She left that apartment, but she didn't go out of the neighborhood, and she hasn't changed her phone number because that's the only phone number Tianda knows for her. So for all those suspicious things, she did just as many things we expect a grieving mother to do. So if we're trying to watch her behavior, sometimes we tend to only look at the negative, out-of-place things, and we don't always look at the things that, that fit. And in this case, she really did act like a grieving mother, in my opinion. But in exploring all of our possibilities, we can't rule out that something happened overnight. The last confirmed sighting of the girls outside of the home was the previous afternoon when they were with their grandmother. We have the voicemail showing that Tianda called her mother that morning, except we don't actually have that voicemail. We have people who reported they heard it. So was it left at 8.30? Was it left at 9.30? Was it left the day before? We honestly don't know. We have the note that Tianda apparently wrote, except that note wasn't dated. It could have been from a different day when she and Diamond were left home and they went to the park. From the afternoon of the 5th until the police were called at 6 or 6.30 at night on the 6th, we don't really know where the girls were or what they were doing. Personally, I don't lean towards this. I do lean towards something happening while Tracy was at work, but I do think this theory has to be put out there. Now, assuming the voicemail was from Tionda, we have a George at the door wanting the girls to come with him. A possible scenario is that Tionda called her mum about George being at the door, got her voicemail, decided that George was a safe person, so she opened the door. George said, Since your mum didn't answer the phone, just go ahead and leave her a note. We'll go to the park and then to the store. He dictated the letter, and in doing so, he left his name out of it conveniently, and the girls drove off in his car. 
We don't know which George this is. You'd think that if it was the babysitter, he wouldn't have told Tionda that they were picking up her mum from work when the other George was the one who planned on getting her. But if it was the other George, why was Tionda so reluctant in opening the door? She knew that they were going camping that day, so she would be expecting him to come back at some point. But it's possible that due to the on and off again relationship of Tracy and George, Tionda was simply under the orders to not open the door for him if Tracy wasn't there. It has been reported that George, Diamond's father George that is, he was found with a Home Depot receipt for gloves, bleach and garbage bags that was purchased before the girls disappeared. I know that he was questioned extensively, but I couldn't find reports of any search warrants of his home or his car that might rule in or out what the bleach was used for. Again, it's an open case, so not everything has been made available. And I guess we could talk about the possibility there could have been a third George, uh, possibly a stranger who knocked on the door and gave that name. I bring this up more in the interest of looking at every angle, But I think if it wasn't one of the two Georges known to Tianda and her mother, Tianda would have mentioned that in her voicemail. She wouldn't have said, George is at the door, but rather, a man named George is at the door. And she wouldn't have opened the door without confirmation from her mother. Every family member has reported her as independent, but very cautious with strangers and very protective of Diamond. She wasn't trusting. She was not a trusting child who would have opened the door to a stranger. If she left that apartment with a man at the door, he was for sure someone she knew. Speaking of George's and father's, George was Diamond's father, but we need to take a look at Tianda's father. Custodial kidnappings are much more common than stranger abductions. A man from the North African country of Morocco was initially named as Tianda's father, and until shortly before she disappeared, he was paying child support for her. He stopped paying child support when the paternity test proved that Tianda wasn't his. But still, a tip came in that the girls may have been taken by him and taken to Morocco. So this Chicago-area case became international. No investigation in Morocco found the girls anywhere with him or any of his family. And the odds that he would have taken Tianda and Diamond, especially after he just found out that Tianda wasn't his child and was going to raise them in Morocco, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Tianda's actual biological father was not in the picture at all and had no contact with her or Tracy after Tracy had broken up with him. They did reconnect after Tianda went missing and he was looked at, but there's no evidence that either girl was with him or his family either. And that leads us outside of Tionda and Diamond's home and outside of their family altogether. Did Tionda and Diamond make it to the playground and were abducted from there? Had they made it to the shopping centre and been abducted from there? Look, I don't know, but the playground they were planning to go to was at the school where Tionda was supposed to be attending summer school. I imagine that means there would have been children and adults around, but no one saw them though. But if the kids outside the apartment are correct, they were outside the building. Perhaps the kidnapping happened between their home and the playground. It just doesn't make sense to me that George would take both Tionda and Diamond. Because why would he have an interest in taking Tionda when he wasn't her dad? Right. I don't 
I don't understand a lot of the theories around it being one of the dads. Also, if they were alive when Tracy left for work, why did he double back and take them? And then what did he do with them after that? Why would he have even done that? They had plans to go camping, which some people think, well, that looks suspicious, but they didn't go. It's not like they packed up the kids and went camping and the kids disappeared from the camp out. So, no, I mean, there are a lot of these pieces that kind of stand out, but none of them fit any of the scenarios. Honestly, this idea of a stranger abduction, even though stranger abductions are rare, that one kind of makes sense to me here. It's been 16 years, so I do recommend people looking at the age progression photos. We will put them up in the usual places. Tionda Bradley would be 26 years old now. She is biracial, with her mother being African-American and her father being Hispanic. She has brown hair, brown eyes, and a quarter-sized scar from a burn on her left forearm. At the time of her disappearance, she was small for her age, being only 4 foot 2 centimetres tall at 10 years old, so she is likely to still be on the shorter side as an adult. Diamond Bradley would be 19 years old now. She's African-American with black hair and dark brown eyes. She has a scar on the left side of her hairline. So let's talk about the second story we have tonight, which is somewhat similar. I'll go ahead and give some background on the family. Scott Fandel was born on January 23rd, 1965. He was initially raised alone by his mother, Margaret, until he was two And that's when Margaret met and married Roger Fandel. Scott used Roger's last name, though it's unclear if there was a legal adoption. But regardless, Scott and Roger were very close. And not being biologically related didn't seem to matter. On August 25th, 1970, Amy Fandel was born. And they lived south of Sterling, Alaska, in a small two-bedroom cabin in the woods. Their cabin was set a ways off the road, barely visible from the road. Though there were other homes out there, the nearest neighbor to the Fandels were about 200 yards away. They had five children who Scott and Amy played with regularly. In January of 1978, after 10 years of marriage, Roger and Margaret separated. Roger then moved to Arizona, which again, for people who aren't that big on geography or U.S. geography... That's 3,700 miles or nearly 6,000 kilometers away from the family. So this is a large distance. The timeline of the events is pretty clear in this case. Although, of course, this is one of the cases that we are talking about. So there is always going to have at least one discrepancy. Because a lot of the places referred to these events occurring on September 5 and 6 of 1978, Other places report it being a day earlier on September 4 or 5. However, the Facebook page for the case that's run by Scott and Amy's uncle, it says it happened on the 4th and the 5th. So we're just going to run with that. So on September 4, 1978, Scott wrote a journal piece for a class at his junior high. He was 13 years old. He mentioned in the entry that his aunt Kathy, and she was Margaret's younger sister, that she was coming to live with them and she'd be arriving that day from Illinois. It's not clear why Kathy was coming, but I think it could be assumed with Roger having moved out nine months earlier, 
She was likely going to help with Margaret with the kids and the expenses. His journal entry also mentioned his Aunt Kathy had a birthday the following day, which that's another reason I think it makes sense to trust their uncle got the dates right. Surely he would have known his own sister's birthday. So Kathy arrived a few hours before dinner and the family stayed home to straighten up, help her settle in and have dinner. After dinner, Margaret, Kathy and the kids headed to Good Time Charlie's, which isn't my co-host's house on a Saturday night, but a bar. And they had foosball there, video games and all the things these places normally have to occupy the kids. Kathy and Margaret had a few drinks and the kids had sodas. No one reported anything being particularly off. There were no words exchanged and there wasn't anything like a suspicious person paying too much attention to the kids. Everything seemed normal. At around 10pm, Kathy and Margaret decided to drop the kids off at home. They planned to go to Kenai to visit a friend. Margaret said she saw the kids go in the home and turn the lights on before she pulled out of the long driveway. But they didn't stay home long. They decided to head over to the neighbor's house to play. They were excited about their aunt being there and were chatty and happy with the neighbors. The play got to be pretty rambunctious. Plus, it was a school night. Plus, it was 10 p.m. that they showed up. So the neighbor eventually sent them on home. The walk between the houses is one that they walked pretty often. At 11.45, another neighbor heading home for the night passed by the Fandel home and saw that the lights were on. Margaret and Kathy hadn't been able to meet up with a friend in Kenai, but instead of heading home, they stayed and visited bars in the area. They arrived home at around 2 a.m. While nothing reports they were intoxicated, they probably were. They had been spending pretty much the whole night in bars. The first thing Margaret noticed that was odd was that the lights in the house were out. Like the house was completely dark and both kids were terrified of the dark and they did not go to bed with all the lights out. The second odd thing Margaret noticed was that there was uncooked macaroni, a can of tomatoes and a pot of water on the stove. Some reports say that the water was boiling. Others just say that it was warm. They don't specifically say that the stove was on. The food itself wasn't odd because this was a frequent snack for Scott. What he would he would make it before bed, which anyone who has had thirteen year old sons know that eating an entire meal for a snack is totally normal. But he didn't actually make the food or eat the food, so that did seem odd. So there are two reports on Margaret's initial thoughts about this scene. One was that she thought the kids were in bed, but Scott had started making his macaroni but had gotten tired and fallen asleep before finishing it. Those with 13-year-old boys also know they're usually highly distractible. The second is that she assumed the kids had decided to spend the night next door instead of in the home. Regardless of what she thought, though, she wasn't terribly alarmed because she didn't check on them. She didn't check next door. She just went to bed. Margaret left the home for work around 8.30 in the morning. When she got there, she called the school, reportedly to tell them to tell Amy she was in trouble for not coming home that morning before leaving for school from the neighbour's house. The school told her that Amy had not shown for school at all. Margaret said her boss wouldn't let her leave work until after the lunch rush, so she felt she had no choice but to wait until she could leave to figure out what was going on. 
Meanwhile, Kathy had slept in until noon. She woke up to find an empty cabin and just assumed her sister was at work and the kids were at school. When the kids were due to arrive home from school and they didn't, Kathy was, of course, worried. The kids next door to where they were living ran over to see where Amy and Scott had been all day and why they hadn't been at school. And that's when Kathy learnt the kids not only hadn't been at school, but they hadn't spent the night next door either. So Kathy called Margaret at work. Margaret headed home and started calling all the kids' friends. You know, maybe the kids had just decided to skip school and play at a friend's house. I mean, we've all been kids once. You don't always make the wisest decisions. But when she realised no one had seen the kids since the night before when they left the neighbour's house, she called Roger in Arizona. She couldn't get in touch with him, but the family member she talked to said he had not gone to Alaska and he did not have the kids. After exhausting all of her ideas on where the kids could be, Margaret called the police after 5 p.m. So we're talking, it had taken 15 hours for anyone to notice the kids were missing and an additional two hours before investigators were alerted. Like we said, with the Bradley sisters waiting six hours is big. Here we're looking at 17 hours. And dogs were brought in to search the woods around the cabin. Like we said, this cabin was in the woods. It was pretty, pretty heavily wooded, in fact. Perhaps if the kids left on their own, they would be able to trail them. It seems like this was done as a path to pursue and not because there was any evidence of them walking off. It was true the kids, particularly Scott, were unhappy about the separation of their parents, and particularly since Roger moved so far away, and they didn't get to see him very often. But the kids didn't bring anything. They were home alone, so they could have filled their backpacks with food and supplies and left undetected. They could have gotten this idea from any number of children's books of kids doing this. Scott had done a wilderness survival class. If he was keen on a forest adventure, he would have put those skills to use and packed some supplies. So it seems unlikely that they left on their own. And much like the searches for the Bradley sisters, nothing was found. No torn jacket, no discarded shoe. The only things found were some shell casings near the cabin. It's unclear if they're connected to this case, but there's no other evidence of shots being fired. No one heard anything. There was no blood found, no window shot out or bullet holes anywhere. And being a rural area, shell casings from either target practice or hunting aren't uncommon. A witness came forward who saw a black sedan head away from the Fandel home on the night of the disappearance. Concerned it was a burglar, the witness actually followed the car until it pulled into a different driveway and turned off its headlights. The witness drove on a bit to then double back, and when he got back, he saw the car pull out of the driveway again and take off. Now, Margaret did have two acquaintances, both carnival workers who were in Alaska just working at the state fair, and they drove a car that matched the basic description, only she didn't remember one of their names and only vaguely remembered the nickname of the other one. So they weren't exactly close friends. They were eventually tracked down, though, with this information about the state fair and the nickname. They were in Maryland at the time, and they were interviewed. One of the men admitted that he did go visit Margaret, only to change his mind and turn around, but that this wasn't the night of the kidnapping. He was in Anchorage that night. It was the night after that he went to Margaret's. 
When asked again, the witness said it could have been the night after. Really wasn't sure which night it was. And the records at the state fair do corroborate the man's story, except there was enough of a gap in time that I guess he could have gone to Sterling that night. But it does seem rather random. Another large focus of the investigation for years has been Roger. As I said, he was not in Alaska that night. However, after his kids went missing, he did fly to Alaska. But at the time, he was in Arizona for this whole timeline. But he had lived in Alaska for a long time and had connections to people in the area. There is a possibility he had someone else do the actual kidnapping, I guess. I don't know the likelihood of that, although considering he did fly straight back to help in the search... I don't know if I do believe he's responsible. It did take years before investigators stopped looking at him as a suspect. And to this day, the kid's uncle believes that Amy is still alive and in contact with her father. Margaret eventually moved back to Illinois in 1980. With the loss of her children, her alcoholism did get out of hand. She spent her days working long hours and in her downtime, she was drinking. She eventually remarried and got sober. Several years later, the old cabin burnt to the ground and it took any residual evidence with it. Our theories here are the usual ones. Runaway, kidnapped by someone who knew them, or kidnapped by a stranger. And the runaway theory is easily dismissed. We already covered that. It's the belief of investigators that the children were kidnapped. The stranger theory is a little shaky. Unless you factor in where they were that night before they went missing. There was no struggle at the cabin, and how would anyone even know to go there, let alone that the kids were going to be alone? So that's where their evening comes in. At the bar, did their mom and aunt discuss their plans to drop the kids off at home and continue the evening elsewhere? Did someone overhear it and decide to take the opportunity? The Trans-Alaska Pipeline had recently been completed, and there was an oil boom bringing lots of new people to the area. Though Sterling was a bit out of the way here, it did see its share of more transient people. There are also rumors in the area that someone trying to save the kids from their mother's lifestyle took them, like religious people, or on the other spectrum, there's rumors that Satanists took them. You know, there's really no evidence of a stranger abduction here. And again, they were in such a rural area so late at night. How would someone know to be out there, whether they're religious types trying to save them or Satanists? But like I said, unless someone overheard something at that bar. It's more likely the children were taken by someone who either they knew or one of their parents knew. Margaret was painted as kind of the party girl with a lot of friends Perhaps she invited the wrong person into their lives. The night the kids went missing, she was introduced casually to a man who was involved in the sex industry. When he heard about the children going missing, he went to Margaret's house and he put up a reward. It could have just been kindness or maybe fixing some of his karma, but it was also a concern that he was putting himself close to the family and the investigation when he was really no more than a recent acquaintance. He was investigated, but nothing came of it. Roger, in an interview, made a comment about his enemies. When he left Alaska, is it possible that maybe he left some unsettled debts or arguments behind that someone decided to settle in a truly depraved way? 
I think that's very possible as well. Like I said before, their uncle believes Amy is still alive and was raised by Roger's family. That still leaves the question of where Scott is, though. And if Amy is living with family, why didn't investigators find her in all the years they investigated Roger? This idea that Roger would have killed Scott because he wasn't the biological child and taken Amy and then managed to hide her for all of these years and continue to hide her, I just... I don't really, I can't really accept it. From all accounts, Roger considered Scott his son. He would have taken both. And again, where are they? Roger was not hiding out anywhere. He was right there in the spotlight. The police investigated him for years and years afterwards. If some blonde-haired girl at 25 was at his house, they would be on top of it. So I can't see how that happened. But I do wonder if Roger talking about his enemies, we knew Margaret had this lifestyle where she had carnival workers who were in town for a couple of weeks in and out of her home. Maybe it's possible that just the wrong person was introduced into the kids' lives. So while the person may not have been known to Scott and Amy. I do think it's someone who knew who Scott and Amy were through one of their parents. I agree. It doesn't make sense it was Roger because, as I said, Roger came straight back. If he was involved, you think he would have hit out some or not came back as quickly. I think it's more likely to be someone that is known to them. So Amy would be turning 47 this year. She has blonde hair and blue eyes, though her hair certainly could have darkened with age. Scott would be 52 years old. He has brown hair and blue eyes. Both Amy and Scott have age progressions available, and as we always do, we'll put them in the usual places. All right, thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode we want to send some shout outs to our Patreon supporters. You can go to patreon.com slash insightpod if you'd like to support us there. Want to say thank you to Bernadette and hi Bernadette. I, you know, we're friends and yeah, I've had her to my house for dinner and stuff. So thank you for your support. And also to Colleen from the Misconduct Podcast. We've really had a great time getting to know her and Eileen over the couple of months that we've known them. So uh, definitely check out their podcast, Misconduct. Also, a thank you to Karen T and a thank you to Janet and thank you, JC. We appreciate all of your support. And also, we have some five star reviewers we want to thank Mauled by Meerkats, Patsy 11441, Starling City, Little Miss Go To, and Steph XX3. Thank you guys so much for your reviews too. We really appreciate the support we get, whether it's Patreon, five-star reviews, or online. Just listeners sending us nice emails. We appreciate all of it. If you want to email us, it's insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can talk to me directly on Twitter at insightfulpod. Allie's on Instagram at insightpod. We're both on Facebook. We're actually both on Facebook probably way more than we should be. And you can find us just by searching Insight Podcast. We have a page where we post our episodes and some things. But if you really want to talk to us, join our group, Insight Pod. Insight is two words. We're, people are sharing articles. We're having some really good discussions. Uh, there are 
was there's recently a case of a killer nurse in Canada, and we're having a great discussion right now about the psychology of that, the mandatory reporting or not reporting of all these people she confessed to. It's great conversation. We'd love to have everyone jump in there and join us with that. We're also trying to out-creep each other with scary photos. Yes, teeth photos. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they're pushing me over the edge. I may have to like ban myself from our own group over this. But no, we've had a lot of fun with the group. Allie and I are both really social media chatty kind of people. So it's been great. You can also message us there. So we'll definitely see you guys around social media. And if not there, then we will see you back in one week.